This is Media Moves, the podcast for executives to make sense of the perpetually moving media landscape. I'm Adam Ryan. Alexis, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Excited to to chat. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I met you years ago at uh, ConCon, an event that we did uh, at The Hustle, but I followed your journey from Penny Hoarder to to what you're doing now and excited to have you tell us a little bit more of like what you're building and, and why you're doing it. Yeah, so I'm building a company called They Got Acquired. This is the fourth media company that I've worked on. Wow. Well, I'm calling it a media company and we'll see if in a few years we end up calling it a data company because on the front end, we're, we are telling stories about businesses that have been acquired for less than $50 million. Usually they're six and seven figure sales and sometimes they're low eight figures. But on the back end, we're building a database of all the acquisitions. And we have about 1,200 companies now that meet our criteria from the last few years. Wow. So yeah, our goal is to make this information available to people who are building companies and want to sell their company so they can see what other companies are selling for. What sparked this idea? Like that's a pretty niche concept of like, okay, 50 million or less. What was like the moment for you that you were like, I think this needs to be solved for? It's really solving my own pain points because I went through two acquisitions that are in that meet our criteria that what we're covering here. And both times I felt like there wasn't enough information out there for someone like me who was selling a business. Like a lot of the advice you can read or the professionals who are out there to help you, they are positioned for much larger sales. And those are the ones that you read about, you know, in the traditional media. So I didn't feel like there's a lot of resources out there for me. I didn't know how to find a lawyer that would do a six-figure sale. I didn't know how to find, you know, who who else do I even need to help me? So it kind of came out of of my own experiences. And then I'm just interested in the space and you know, you know, I have talked about how it's a growing space. I believe there's a lot of people who want to build a little bit differently and not, don't necessarily want to follow the Silicon Valley model. Maybe they only want to raise a little bit of money or they don't want to raise at all. Maybe they, you know, don't want to work 60 hour weeks. That's I fall into that camp. So I'm creating resources for people like that. It's such an authentic story to you. And you went to market with from an external perspective, a lot of momentum. People knew what you were building. You were kind of, you're building in public as, as the term goes, uh, as, as they say. What made that decision and like how do you think that's been a good decision? Would you change anything about the process thus far? I mean, I think it was a good decision. The building in public, like I love doing that stuff. And I mean, I've been doing that since before we called it building in public. Right. But traditionally, like, you know, through a newsletter and a blog, you know, 10 years ago, I was writing about, how I was growing my business at that time. But I just leaned into it more heavily. Like I I took a seven year hiatus from Twitter and just came back. And so I started sharing more of these micro bits about what we're building on Twitter, partly because it's a lot easier to do it that there than writing long blog posts. Yeah. Um, And yeah, it helped us. Like when we launched, we had a email list of about a thousand people. So we had a group to launch to. That was my goal. I didn't want to launch to crickets. I wanted to have a starting point when, when we launched. And so far, there's nothing I would do differently. I mean, I think having built a couple of media businesses before gave me an idea of like what I, how I wanted to do things and how I wanted to grow it. I'm sure there'll be things I want to change in the future, but we're not there yet. Are there themes that you've identified, whether on the founder side or the company side of these like more micro acquisitions? You know, you, you were aqua hired. The story is that you were aqua hired for a six figure sum, which allowed you to build this. 
is there like themes of people listening that like, Hey, this is, this is what you kind of need to like look for um, when you're trying to have a, a business that sells for that amount versus more than, you know, 50 million. I think the acquisition you're talking about was, I wasn't actually an acquire because the six figure sale that I had last year was I just sold an asset. That okay. was a, a website called the right life. Um, but yeah, there's so, there's so many themes popping up that it's been really interesting t- to see because in addition to collecting as many metrics as we can about these companies that are selling like things like obviously if we can what was their sale price or at least you know was it a six seven or eight figure sale what are their how many customers did they have at sale or what are their page views or their email subscribers any of those metrics we can collect those are all interesting but we're also looking at like how do they sell the company and how did they make it happen because a lot of people who are building businesses don't really think about having to sell their business until they get there and then they're like oh there's this huge learning curve of figuring out how to do it Unless it's like your second or third sale, right? Um, or your second or third company. Do you think that there's more people doing this to like flip businesses now? Or do you think people are like growing sustainable businesses that then like they're ready to cash out? Because there's like a difference approach. Yeah, the second. I, I think there's a lot of people who are building sustainable businesses. And in fact, yeah. I mean, one theme that has popped up already so far that has been really interesting to me is there's a lot of people who build businesses that are on the smaller side and they don't realize that they can sell them. Right. Like we just featured on our podcast, um, a woman named Lauren Gagioli, who sold a company called Higher Scores Test Prep. It was a test prep company for SAT and ACT. And she built this over years, but she worked minimally because she had a family and she was bringing in about, it was just about 60K a year in revenue. So it wasn't a huge business by any means, but she was thinking, oh, I'll have to just let this die because I don't want to do it anymore. You know, a friend said to her, why don't you think about selling it? And it, the business is in such great shape that she ended up selling it for $180,000. Wow. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. When you're collecting, you said maybe we'll be called a database company. It sounds a little CB Insights uh, comparison of like a uh, similar mindset, but it takes scrappiness, capital, and access to build databases. Like it's, it's not easy. How did you start? Like if someone was trying to build a database for a media business, like what would be your like top advice to them? Gosh, well, I don't feel like I'm an expert in this. First of all, like this is one of the things why, like when I chose to build this company, I wanted to do something that I knew, which is media. And I want to do something that was new to me that I could learn. And that's the data part. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, you know, we're an air table and a lot of what we're doing is at the moment we're curating really manually. Like we don't have yet a way to scrape this information or bring it in automatically. And a lot of that is because no one else has done this before. Like there's no one else has collected information about private sales that are six, seven or low eight figures. So we have to go to the founders and ask them for the information or to the to the buyers and ask them. Yeah. And, and that that's how we're creating it. It's really like a scrappy by hand operation. But it's not, I mean, PitchBook is a huge business that has outrageous fees. Uh, We just bought it. It's like insane amount a year. And it's funny, the way that they do, as soon as your round gets announced, they just have a person that emails you. He's like, hey, would you like to update your pitch book? You know, it's still manual uh, for them, even at that scale. So it sounds like it's still just, until you can figure out a tech tool to scrape, it's just grinding a little bit. I mean, that's what's worked for us too, is just having a process around it. You know, how does it work? What are we looking for? And, And we're really still figuring a lot of that out because we're so new. So we, we try it and then we iterate along the way. Love it. Well, I know you said you're not an expert, but I think it's, you know, so far it's it's been fairly impressive with like the top of funnel media brand that you've created. 
And then that's going to create this flywheel where more people just reach out to you and get it, get it going. <laughs> Last question, which I think that when people think about databases that I've talked to, they really have a hard time understanding incentives like PitchBook. It makes sense because you tell them there's your seed valuation because then it can help you raise your A. What is the incentive for folks to share post-acquisition? It's funny because I was just having this conversation with with a woman who you know may help us with some of the the database product um, who has a lot more experience in this than I do. I mean, right now the main incentive is that you could help other entrepreneurs by sharing this information, yeah. and not not everyone's incentivized by that. But I find a lot of people are. But you know, the tough part is a lot of people don't want to share for certain reasons for different. You know, there's often it's different reasons than you'd imagine. Like there's quite a few people who don't want to share because. They just don't want people to know that they made a lot of money. They don't want their family to know they made a lot of money. So it's it's a tricky topic. And that's why we, with the database, we're being really um, flexible in terms of like what we collect. The way I think of it is for each deal, we may not have every single data point. But as a whole, when you put it all together, it creates a set that's that has offers insights and that is meaningful. So if we can get whatever we can for each one, it's it's more than what is out there today. You're a storyteller. Like I've always thought of you as a content person, like you're content through and through. Do you think databases without storytelling actually have value or do you think really storytelling is a required aspect of a database? Well, this is what I think we're going to be doing differently because I mean, I, and I, I've been like surveying this, the what's out there already as I figure out how to go forward with our first paid product. And it's interesting, like, yeah, you can, you can download Airtable databases that even just have you know twenty or forty fields in there that are helpful and useful useful to the person who's who's downloading them, but to me, I think it's a lot more valuable, especially for the purposes of which we're creating this. If there's context around it, so putting that story together. I mean, if we just had to collect the data, we would have a paid product already. But because we're putting the stories together and adding the storytelling, I think that adds a dimension that makes it a lot more helpful. It goes deeper, you know, but it does take a lot more work. I think you create a bigger pie that way, right? Like if you just give the data, you're going to have people who are very like, okay, I'm here for like a financial reason, probably, right? If you have context, you're going to have people there for like education purposes. And like that's helping more people. I think you're, it's a better business move to do that as well. I mean, we kind of have to too, because it fills in the gaps. Because like for, well, for a surprising number of companies, we have the sale price or at least something that puts it into a box. Like some founders can say, you know, I sold for high seven figures or I sold for high six figures or something like that. But especially for the ones that can't share that information, adding in the story layer, it just makes it way more valuable. Awesome. Well, I think they got acquired as on the upside of this trend of more micro acquisitions, uh, more companies I think are flush with cash and they're asking, you know, public companies are saying quit doing stock buybacks, which is allowing more cash. I think a lot of trends in the financial ecosystem are allowing for these more micro acquisitions and more entrepreneurship, which is like just, I think, a bloodline of, of the country. And so you're building a business that I think is 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 early on this curve. And whether you want to, you were telling me before, you don't see it that way because your head's down, but that's how I perceive the business. I'm like, wow, that's ahead of the ahead of its time. But when you're thinking about the last 12 months, you started building this more than a year ago, really. What have you missed so far where you're like, wow, I wish I would have like paid attention more to this or that? And it doesn't have to be regret necessarily, but is there anything so far that when you like reflect back the last 12 months of building that you're like, I wish I would have done this to help the media business move forward? Or were you late to either one? If I think about what we came late to, 
we're, we're doing a podcast and I consider us to be late to that <laughs> because, you know, podcasting isn't new and shiny anymore. So we were late to that, but we decided to do it anyways, because I think it's the right medium for reaching the people that we want to reach. Yeah. We're doing a narrative style podcast. So it is a little bit different in that regard. And then it's not a straight up Q&A. It's like highly produced, you know, with music behind it. And it's a story instead of just an interview. So I like to think of that as we're being innovative in that way. Yeah. But that's something that yeah, we're late to. Why narrative over interview besides just differentiation? Like, do you, did you have any other instincts around that, that, that folks are, you think missing? I mean, I get sick of like just hearing Q and A's all the time. So I was asking myself, like, if we're going to do this, how do we do it a little bit differently and maybe a little bit better? And, and, you know, it's way more expensive and more effort intensive to do a narrative style podcast. Yeah. Um, so that can be prohibitive, but so far I think it's been worth it for us. So that, that was one reason why I just wanted, if we're going to do it, I don't want to just add to the noise. I want it to be something that's better. And then second is, you know, I, I have a background in journalism, so I'm used to asking people questions, but it's been a long time. And, you know, I'm not a speaker. I'm like primarily a writer and, and I'm the host of the podcast, which we decided to do, even though that was not my first instinct. I wanted to hire someone to do it. And we decided to do that because we felt like it would bring more trust to the brand. But I felt like there was going to be a learning curve for me in hosting. And so doing a narrative style, highly produced podcast gives me the wiggle room. Like I get to learn and we can cover up my mistakes. <laughs> Always pleading for uh, the gaps in your talent is a good way. <laughs> it's a classic content first person uh, mindset there. Um, I, I think you're the noise of audio, uh, as I say, ironically, on an interview podcast, but um, the the noise of audio is there and like unless you're really niche or you have a narrative like a different format like narrative style it's hard to stick out uh and i think one of the things that we say is like the world just doesn't need another podcast and how do you overcome that so i i totally agree when one of the things that i and your podcast started to get some good buzz and people talk about on twitter and i saw you mentioned it's like one of the companies uh one of like the newer media companies to watch or something on a list are there any companies that others aren't necessarily paying attention to as much that you think others should uh, learn from or look at? Yeah. I mean, I like watching scrappy bootstrapped companies. That's kind of my thing that I'm interested in. Yeah. So I'll tell you about Startup Parent, which is an awesome resource for anyone who's building a startup and is a parent. They primarily serve women now, but they're expanding you know, for other parents as well. But that's been a great resource for me as I've you know, become a mom and had to figure out how to work a little bit differently. And I think a lot more people now are starting to realize that, you know, especially with the pandemic, you have to integrate your life. You can't separate the two. Uh, and it's becoming more socially acceptable too. So I think companies like that, that help parents work a little bit differently are going to see an uptick in the next few years. Oh, I think that's a huge, huge opportunity. I, I just was pitched a, a dad media company and it wasn't like bro sports man stuff it was like how do you like hold your baby correctly yeah. and like how do you like do these things is like they had like a whole thing about like how to buy clothes as like a 250 pound man or so. it was like just like very like good stuff that like i think you like need to know and i think parent content and this is this goes to the trend of like one of the things that i don't think is talked about enough is that the digital age are becoming parent like big time like the yes. top age has like 15 year olds, uh, millennials, like uh, the 15 ish and younger. 
and there's not con like you know fatherly tried and it's so, a uh, you know uh, there's others that like have tried to do certain pieces but uh, kind of someone who can build a modern media business I think that's a huge opportunity yeah especially the intersection of business and parenting which is where startup parent sits because like I don't personally I don't consume any parenting content I just I'm like I parent all the time I don't want to read about it too. But like someone who like a community that gets it and what it's like to try and balance the two. To me, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's amazing. There's another one out there. I'll give Ashley Pump uh, Prowess Project, which is helping mothers go back into the workforce. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And uh, Ashley is killing it. She's creating like educational content to like help you have your talking points and like does a community. It's really, 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 really good. And it's just a, if anybody's a parent, you, it's a real problem. We were talking about this before. Until you like say, it, you're like, wow, it's difficult to work. Yeah, the support and isn't there. <laughs> no, it's not. And I think there's actually a lot of like quality content that can be created around that, that creates community too, and does something really good. So love that, that pump. Uh, taking a step back and looking five years down the road, how, and you, you hinted at this early, but if, I had the honor to interview in five years from now on the same podcast where we're talking about media audience companies. How do you describe they got acquired and, and what does it look like at that time? I think of the acquisition as like a entry point for right now, but I think we could do a lot more because I think there's a lot more that people who are building these types of companies, they want more information beyond the acquisition acquisition point. So while right now that's where we're focused on, I can see us broadening that in, in the years to come to make sure that these types of entrepreneurs have the resources they need, like across the business uh, lifespan. From like inception to acquisition, potentially. Yeah. 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 Um, That was always a gap that we identified, you know, with, we did trends of like to help people get started, but then like everyone was like, well, what do I do next? You know? And like some crazy amount of people, I forgot the stat that I read, but like, it's upwards of 60 or 70% of people are like running a business for like four or five months without a business bank account normally like <laughs> at the start because they don't like know what to do. There's just so many things like that, that a trusted source, like helping people take a step at a time would be, mm-hmm. would be awesome. Yeah. Uh, what about the database? Like, how do you see that playing in? Is there anybody out there that you're like, we love their model and we, we want to maybe like step somewhat in their same uh, footprints, but on a, in a different way? Yeah. I'm glad you asked that. So right now, like the way we're, we're starting out, where we're launching these database products, which is we're, we're basically writing reports and putting together reports that we can sell to our audience. But what I'd like to be able to do in the long game is have a UX where anyone could log in and get the information that they want. So you could filter by, hey, I'm looking for e-commerce companies that sold last year that had a revenue of around $1 million. I'm just making this stuff up. But you could, yeah. you could pull the comps that you want to pull. But, you know, we're going to we're going to try this out first with little bite sized pieces and experiment with it and see what works. And then hopefully we can build that out in the future. Yeah, I love that. What about and this is I guess this is my own personal experience. I was as at Under Armour during the My Fitness Pal, Matt, My Fitness acquisitions made all these headlines like Kevin Plank's biggest bet, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. And like it didn't work. It made headlines. It did, And like they didn't the publicity of it not working was not even close to when the acquisitions happened. Mm -hmm. And I kind of have this philosophy in a way that a lot of these publicly traded companies that do these like smaller under 50 million, they like do it to look good in a boardroom for like a meeting and be like, look at this great idea uh, that we're going to do. And look at like the potential here. And the reality is like a lot of that, a lot of acquisitions just like actually don't provide positive ROI. 
How do you think about that? Like, because in that experience, if I log in, I'm doing a comp so I could potentially make a decision of like what to buy. Or what to sell. Yeah. Or what or to, how sell. Much to sell. Yeah. Yeah. How much to sell. Um, but there's got to be, uh, do you think there's got to be something to talk about like the outcome of that at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've written a little bit about this, but we have a lot more queue stories in our queue coming. But like, I think one of the interesting things about that is I think one reason why acquisitions often don't work out is because of the cultural piece. The company doesn't think about like, how are they going to integrate <laughs> this company that they acquired? And so I think there's a lot that we could do around that is like, how do you make that a smooth transition? <laughs> how do you make it a win for everybody? That was the problem with UA. Like my fitness pal is a San Francisco based kind of startup. Matt Mai was based in Austin and kind of like a bro culture. And the Endomondo was in Europe. And mm-hmm. the woman who led that was like very into fitness and cared like all about the health of the users. And then Under Armour was a public trade company trying to make a profit. And we're like doing four companies in one building it was the it besides like at one point i think it was like we had like slack jira and like we <laughs> yeah. like no one thinks about all the tech integrations <laughs> as well but the culture of like hey we used to value that and you don't and we did this and like that's really like what drives those to not work so yeah, I, I think you're, you're dead on um vetting for values during acquisition as someone who does like a lot of micro acquisitions vetting for values could be something that the content like i would pay anything to like have a system or process from someone that like has studied that because it, that that is how you kill a deal yeah and and also even after the deal how do you, how do you integrate what's the process for not integrating logistically but integrating like values wise or culturally <laughs> yeah totally so we talked a little bit about how the business could look in 5 years but let's talk about the media industry as a whole what do you think in five years will be totally different in our space than that exists today? The piece that I get excited about is the community potential, because I think that right now, the way that we're doing communities as media companies could be way better. Like it's very fragmented. People are all over the place. You know, you, you get content from one place, you have a conversation somewhere else, or, you know, you you share your information in one place, you have to send everyone else, everyone somewhere else to have a conversation. I'm interested to see how we can do that better, <laughs> just generally as like the media ecosystem. I think part of it is the tools and the technology and building something that makes it easier to do. Yeah. But I think even bigger than that is just envisioning how could we do it differently and how could we do it better? And because communities are becoming so important in media, I feel like five years from now, we will have figured out a better solution for that. It's a really, really valid. I've never heard someone position it like, circle the community app is great but like doesn't have any of your content next to it Mm -hmm. and like the comment section of websites is not a community how do you like integrate that i think you're you're dead on i I actually that is the stickiness of community is incredibly difficult because the content isn't there to refresh them yeah i feel like you and i could talk we should have an hour-long conversation someday about this because like i this is what i've been thinking about is like how could we help move this piece forward and, and what, what would it look like if I could do anything when they got acquired and on the on the community side when we're ready for that? Wow. Um, yeah, that that's a takeaway for anyone like building or trying to solve in the media industry, like actually creating an integration solution that allows like you to have a CMS essentially with your community. That's not just like a comment section. Really, really. I'll be really, your first client. <laughs> uh, really, yeah, same. With all the shift, there's all these trends that are, you know, could happen in five years. What do you think's 
going to be the exact same in five years in the, in the industry. I see trust as being just as important then as it is now. I feel like it's always been that way, but it's become even more important in the last few years as you know, we've had lots of things happening in the world that have made people not trust different media outlets. Like yeah. to me, that's everything is if you can, and you know, that's something that we focused on really big from the beginning where they got acquired, but it's not like you don't see that. You don't see like trust on the website, <laughs> but we have all these underlying currents of things that we worked on to try and help people trust us and see that, yes, we're, we're real reporters doing, you know, finding real information and, and we have someone editing and we, we fact check these things. However you do it, I think helping your community or your readers or listeners or your audience trust you, I think it would be just as important then as it is now. I uh, interviewed uh, Preston earlier this week. He was season two guest. And he said something pretty similar, but I'd be curious, like, what are those undercurrents? Like, how did you think about that when you were going to market? What are the undercurrents that you had to do and how visible do you make those versus like how internal are they? Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, I have a checklist um, that I've used on other brands that I tried to apply to ours. One is, is branding. And that's always pushing me because I am such a word person that I always undervalue the importance of good visuals and making something look quote unquote professional, but it's really important at a launch. And that's why we put money into that. And, you know, we didn't spend a ton of money on branding, but we got a good website that looks legit when you visit it. Yeah. And then another piece we did before I had a launch is um, I worked really hard on our about page and you can see if you go to the page, it's theygotacquired.com slash about. We talk about like who we are, what our mission is. You can see the people that work on the brand. And then you can click over to each of those people and you can read who they are as well. And like for content, this can be really important because even, and you know, we're, we're going to be leading heavily into search. We are leading heavily into search. Google wants to know he can, tr he, they can trust the, the writers that you have, right? So you've got to say, hey, not only these are, are these real people, but they're reporters who have experience in what we're writing about and they know what they're talking about. So I want to make that clear both to the people who are actually reading, but also to the Google systems of the world who can who can see that in our content and, and know that that it's worth trusting. Not surprised. We hadn't brought up SEO at all. You were at Petty Hoarder. I'm shocked <laughs> that it didn't come up before. I think SEO is one of the most underrated aspects of a media business right now. No one's paying attention to it. Everyone's focused on newsletters for good, you know, good purpose. Like they're focused on email and email collection and, and building direct relationships with the audience. How do you, uh, as a as a final piece here, how do you see SEO being used in the future, uh, or and like how do you think companies should should start to utilize it? I actually think a lot of people do think about it, but they're more like the content site people that are, you know, a little bit off the radar or are very niche. Like people who've been doing doing niche businesses for the last ten years. Niche is kind of hot now, but a lot of us have been doing it, you know, from since before. So <laughs> here's why I like it. It's like to me. I feel like search is, if I had to rely on one social channel, obviously you never want to have all your eggs in one basket, but if I had to rely on one, I would want it to be search. I wouldn't want it to be some social channel because yeah, so you have to put a lot of time and effort into search and you have to be really patient, but it gives you back over time. And assuming that you do it in a good way, I think the chances are being of being penalized when you don't deserve it are lower than on some other channels. Yeah. So if I had to, if I had to put my eggs in one basket, that would be the one I'd put it in. That's a good claim. I don't think a lot of people would say that for what it's worth. I mm -hmm. uh, I know uh, you're saying more people focus on SEO, but I, most people I talk to right now are like email, still focus on email, still focus on email. But like email, well, email then, it's different though. Email is like, 
I well, they're 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 talking yeah. about email from like social though. Is driving social? I think is like how a lot of people have th- thought about that funnel, kind of following like Morning Brew and, and the hustle did uh, with those playbooks. But I I agree with you. I think SEO is is long term, not only potentially the most profitable channel. It's also a moat. Like you own a you own a search term, and it's also the reason. Another reason why I mean your, your audience probably knows this, but it's often more way more valuable than those other channels. Like you get someone who's coming to your your site with intention. They searched for something that they want. You know, and they're coming to visit you because of that. They didn't just like happen to see something pop up that like may relate to what they're doing in their in their Facebook feed, and they they clicked on it. Like it's it's much more valuable traffic than traffic from some other sources. Yeah, absolutely. The cohort base is like way higher. All right, well, let's wrap this one up, Alexis. Uh, thank you so much for coming on uh, Media Moves. Everyone should follow you on Twitter at Alexis Grant and uh, go to your your website theygotacquired.com and follow along. I learn from following you on Twitter all the time. Uh, I think the business that you're building is incredibly fascinating and uh, we'd love to have you back on the podcast and, uh, and, and as, you, as you keep growing it. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay ahead of media's next move, then make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. I'll see you next time.